This is the Place for a Purpose podcast. We want to help you live out what Jesus said was the most important thing you could do with your life. Love God and love your neighbor, including your next door neighbors. So we're going to keep neighboring on your mind by encouraging you with practical ways to connect with those next door so you can live knowing you've been placed for a purpose because your address is not an accident and neither is your neighbor's. Hi, everybody. We are Elizabeth and Chris McKinney. Welcome to the Place for a Purpose podcast. Today, we have a special guest on to talk about building trust in neighborhoods and the breakdown of it, how we might rebuild it. And this is something that we've seen, particularly in our neighborhood, just how important it is to have trust. Trust has been everything for us. It's been the bridge that has helped us connect with our neighbors. It's been the gas and the engine. We could have metaphors for trust for days, but it's a really important topic as you think about building relationships with your neighbors. And so we're excited to have Ryan Ganey here with us today. Ryan is married with two kids and works as a family insight analyst for Family Life, a ministry of crew in Orlando, Florida. And he's done a ton of research in the neighboring and community space, which is why we're excited to chat more and learn from him today. And he's a friend. So welcome, Ryan. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. What I didn't mention, too, is we've been able to be a part of a working group where we've been talking neighboring. So tell us a little bit about the organization you work for, because some people may not be familiar with Family Life. And tell us about your role in the research that you did on neighboring. Yeah, so Family Life is a marriage and family ministry. It has been around for a long time, almost like half a century. It's probably best known for its events that it does for married couples, weekends to remember. The neighboring space is a little bit new for us, but it makes sense at the same time. When you think about neighborhoods, they're full of families, right? If we want to know where to reach families, our neighborhoods are a great place to start. So taking all of the biblical principles that we have taught over the last 50 years about what it means to have a godly home, we're very much interested in those godly homes having an impact on the communities around them. We want people to make an impact in their corner. We spur people on to. And part of the research that we wanted to do is tapping into a question of why does that not happen already? A lot of Christians suppose that they have the greatest news to give to people in the world. And we believe that families are the greatest untapped resource for good in the world. So you would think those fundamental beliefs, those fundamental realities would mean that Christians are some of the favorite people in the neighborhood, but oftentimes they're not. So we wanted to try to understand that a little bit better. What are some of those hindrances to people wanting to share their faith, wanting to be used by God in a way that they feel called to according to their gifts and sensibilities? What gets in the way of that? And what promotes it too? Where are people already seeing that work done in a neighborhood context? So what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses to a neighboring movement? Organizationally, it makes sense that family life would step into the neighboring space. And I love that you started with research because I'm a research person. What about for you personally? Did you have any personal investment in this? Or was there a reason why you were interested in exploring the space? Yeah. So we moved to Orlando in May of 2020. And I think anytime someone moves to a new neighborhood, it's sort of an inciting event to start fresh, start new relationships, learn about the new environment, the new place that you were placed in. And 
what we did was a little bit different. I mentioned May of 2020. If anyone remembers <laughs> what was going on, it was difficult. It was difficult to get out into our neighborhood and meet people in a way that didn't lead them to believe that we were crazy, that we were anti-COVID, anti-whatever. So we wanted to play it safe, not only in how we were building relationships, but obviously we were playing it safe for ourselves as well. But yeah, moving into a neighborhood, that's an important and exciting event for anyone. And what we really wanted to do moving into this particular neighborhood was make our mark on it as early and safely as we could. We felt really encouraged and excited that this particular neighborhood that we moved into would be a great place for us to start these kind of neighboring connections. We moved into the neighborhood for very specific reasons. Even when we were looking for houses, our realtor was very strategic bringing us into this particular neighborhood. It's close to the headquarters. So all of those things check the boxes in terms of proximity to work. There's a local church nearby, grocery stores within 15 minutes away. And that was all important for us. But what we didn't really expect was how established the community was already. That's a gift. It was a gift. We were so thrilled and we got to see it. Some of these things you don't often recognize before you are living in the neighborhood. You hope to understand some of those dynamics. Even that idea, if you're looking for a house, it'd be great to just knock on the door next door. And be like, hey, we're thinking about buying this house. What do you think about living here? We couldn't do any of that, obviously. And we didn't live in Orlando. We bought our house sight unseen. We had our realtor FaceTime us. But there was one trip. We took a vision trip to Orlando, which helped a ton. Our realtor, again, I said he was very strategic. He gave us a tour of his neighborhood right at about 3.15 as the school bus was letting out. We just saw like a wave of children run out in the neighborhood. There's a park right across the street from our house, which again, blessing, favor, what a gift. That resource is right there, literally 30 feet from front door to park, touching the grass of the park. We didn't have to envision what it would look like and how it would be to connect with other families in his neighborhood because he was so strategic. He let us see it for ourselves. And I got to tell you guys, that initial vision has absolutely played out. It's one of the most connected neighborhoods, not just that I've seen, but also in doing all the research that I've done. This is not common. What we have is very special. And there's a little bit of this survivor guilt is probably not the right way to put it, but like I didn't have to do any work to make this happen. We're just part of the dozens of families that sustain how connected things feel. So it felt really special to just inherit something really beautiful and connected. And in the research, I really do try to focus on strengths, right? Strengths-based. We're probably going to talk about a lot of the things about how trust has eroded over time, and that's going to be an absolute downer. <laughs> but focusing on the good, focusing on the strengths, I entered into a neighborhood that was like, hey, let me show you the strengths. If you want to know what to do, you can see it here. So that's been a really beautiful backdrop to all the research that I've done. I get to read about how trust is eroding. We're seeing more polarization in our country and our world than ever. And then when I go out my front door, I see us having spontaneous conversations at the park. I see people walking up to me and saying, hey, when we do our field day next month, do you know anything about basketball? We want to have a basketball tournament at our field day. And I can tell them, no, that's not my strength. But my neighbor behind me, I see him out there with his daughters every afternoon practicing. He's probably the right guy. Then she goes, okay, 
I will go talk to Mr. Brown. We'll figure that out. I'm surprised there's no pickleball tournaments. There needs to be. There is room. I measured it recently. If I put the tape down and I get a temporary net, we could have a pickleball court at our basketball court. So you moved in, got to experience this incredible neighborhood. Then you started this research. And it was like, oh my gosh, what we're experiencing here. And maybe you knew this intuitively, but you saw it in the research. And now you have this amazing like, okay, this is what the reality is for a lot of neighborhoods. But I'm living in a neighborhood that does have trust. And so it just puts that research in a different light. So tell us more about the research and some of the findings. And even if there were some of the findings that surprised you in any ways. Yeah, I think a great place to start is that inciting moment that I mentioned. When I moved to a new neighborhood, that is an important moment for the person moving in and for the people that already live there. And what I should say is that whenever we set out to do this research, we really were, we were really trying to understand what promotes and hinders someone from being used by God in their neighborhood. And we didn't really know going into it that trust was going to be as important as it is. We didn't really fully comprehend and understand how important those moments are, like when someone moves in. We didn't really anticipate how important shared spaces were, like a park where someone can actually go. And it's a safe, neutral third place because it can be very risky is probably not the best word, but we have a perceived risk in inviting people into our home. Or going into someone's home. Yeah, or going in. Even to this day, there's still a hesitancy. If my son is like, hey, can I go over to so-and-so's house? I haven't met their parents, or I heard him at the park one time. He sort of exclaimed Jesus Christ's name, not because he was proclaiming the gospel, because he was frustrated about something. There are still those moments, right, where, okay, it's a risk here. And that's where trust fills that gap. That's why it's so important. But yeah, setting out on doing our research, we really didn't expect it. So some of the things that we learned were pretty interesting. Take, for example, that moment when someone moves in. There is a study done by the Harris Poll. They typically work with businesses. They measure people's behaviors and attitudes in the marketplace, and they'll help businesses understand and unpack that data. Harris Poll did a study with State Farm, like a good neighbor. State Farm is there, right? So that's their tagline. So they really wanted to press in to that brand, like a good neighbor. What do people think a good neighbor is? Which I thought was a really interesting question and one that we wanted to certainly learn more about. And a lot of people had that perception that a good neighbor reaches out and meets someone who just moved in. 75% of people said, yes, a good neighbor is going to introduce themselves to someone who recently moved into the neighborhood. And yet, whenever they moved in, only 40% said that someone introduced themselves to them. Which even sounds high to me. If we glass half full, okay, that's still pretty good. Four in 10 neighbors, when they moved in, someone said, hello, my name is Ryan. Welcome to the neighborhood. Where are you from? That sort of conversation. Would it be better if it were more? Of course. The interesting thing was that gap in value and behavior, right? That's what we'll see time and time again in the research is there's a gap between what we desire and what we value and what we actually do or what we actually experience. Again, being strengths-based, being hopeful, what do we do to fill that gap? And why aren't people filling that gap? And that's really where we tapped into that trust thing. And again, we didn't know what to expect, but when we got into it, we realized pretty quickly that trust is important. Being a researcher, I really don't want to be biased. I'm always 
protecting myself against assuming that I know something or going into a study, only trying to verify what I think is true. So we really set out for this study to be exploratory. We just wanted to hear from people. What has your experience been engaging in your neighborhood? It was a qualitative study. Quantitative is numbers. How much? How often? Qualitative is why? How? Let's break down the narrative. So we interviewed people. We did in-depth interviews. We had some great questions that were prepared ahead of time for them to explain what their engagement has looked like in their neighborhood. But the beauty in all of it is that we get to ask deeper questions and really press in a little bit more. And one participant said something that just really stuck with us. We were like, okay, this is the central theme now of this study because we think it so accurately addresses that gap. They said, no one will ever share with someone the depths of their heart and struggles if they don't trust the other person. Now, they went deep, right? We're talking about our neighbor interactions, which we, of course, want to be cordial. We want to be connected. We want it to be friendly. But if you are thinking, how can God use me in this neighborhood? You want that level of depth to go there. You want it to be a rich friendship. You want it to be something where you can be transparent and vulnerable, and they will be too. And through that, you'll understand people's weaknesses and where Jesus can show up for them. So we were trying to take it there. That's what they said. No one will ever share with someone the depths of their heart and struggles if they don't trust the other person. And this is where they flipped it. We need to be people that others can trust. We need to be people that others can trust. So I was confronted in my own sort of hypocrisy whenever we heard this, because I'm thinking to myself, like that example with that boy who said, Elliot, can you come play at my house? And I'm thinking, I don't really know that parent. I don't know that family bottom line, I don't trust them. I don't trust them. And this participant in our study said, we need to be people that others can trust. Am I trustworthy if I'm not sending my son to play at their house? What do you think that neighbor's thinking? Are they too good to come over? Who knows? They probably feel judged or whatever. And we were talking about this in a previous episode when we were talking about hospitality and really the welcome of the stranger and how we're afraid to trust our next door strangers because we feel like we're the vulnerable ones and we don't feel safe and we don't think about our neighbors being vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. Something that Harris Poll study tapped into along the same lines is that I need to be, certainly in this initial context about being trustworthy, I need to understand what I would need to do to be trustworthy. Others need to trust me. And Oftentimes, reciprocity has a really strong impact on trust. And in the study, they looked at the willingness that people have to express a need. And doing that, it ends up doing this really interesting thing with people. And it's been written about going all the way back to guys like Carnegie. He wrote his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He said, if you want to influence people or if you want to make a friend, ask them for something, which seems counterintuitive that I'm asking them to do something for me. I want them to trust me. I should be doing something for them. But it's this like deference to another person. It's that humility. In the study, people are more likely to ask a neighbor for help with a small project than a friend who does not live in their neighborhood. How many people were likely to do that? 37%. Let me state that in a different way. Only 37% of people were willing to ask a neighbor for help with a small project. The other 73%, they would go to a friend who doesn't even live in their neighborhood. Because they don't want to be that vulnerable with the people they live right next door to. They've already have trust with the friend. 
And so I don't want to put myself out there because what if they say, I can't help you? It's hard to ask for help. I hate asking for help. And to do that with people you don't trust or have relationships with, but those are the people that are right around you. That's a way to build that relationship, but there's that barrier there. So getting back to perceived values and behavior, that same study, it said six in 10 people say that helping a neighbor out with an unexpected need is a trait of a good neighbor. We have this impression in our mind of what a good neighbor looks like, and yet our behavior doesn't close that gap. It doesn't measure up to our expectations. It's probably another way of saying that. We don't know how to close the gap. We have these disparities and we don't know how to close them. Or maybe we don't want to or we're afraid to. Yeah, that's what we wanted to tap into and really try to dig in deeper on. We don't know how. Oftentimes, we're not sure that we want to. We'll hopefully touch on this later, but there is that moment where Jesus is using the parable of the Samaritan, and the next question out of that Pharisee's mouth is, who is my neighbor? Can I put some limits and guardrails around who I'm supposed to be this kind, considerate, wanting to close the gap? Do I want to close the gap with that person? Maybe because they have a certain political sign in their yard. Or maybe because they're from a different culture, I feel uncomfortable. I don't know how to close that gap. I don't speak that language. I don't listen to that music. Certainly not going to vote for that candidate. I don't think music should be that loud. Whatever it might be, or they use Jesus' name in a way that I don't. So maybe I don't want to close the gap with that person. But Jesus turns that on its head and says, no, that's the exact person that you need to close the gap with. What's interesting, and where maybe we'll move and talk about some of the lack of trust that we have in institutions and how that filters down into our interpersonal relationships. But something that's encouraging by that is it's interesting that people from that survey, they want to have someone come and introduce themselves and they think that that would be a good thing to do. And yet it's not happening. So if I'm thinking about trying to get to know my neighbor and someone moves in, knowing this, I could say, it's really scary. It's going to be really scary to go over there and put myself out there and be vulnerable. But I know from research, numbers don't lie, (laughs) that new neighbor probably wants me to come over. And even if they're thrown off by it, they will close the front door and think, wow, that was a really great neighbor. I was hoping somebody would do that. So it kind of gives a little bit of some hope or even some motivation or vision to push through that trust barrier a little bit and put yourself out there because they want you to do that potentially. Yeah, 100%. And the lie that we tell ourselves is that they don't want that or I'm going to be awkward. I'm not going to know what to do. That was another aspect that we had in our study We did our in-depth interviews. We also did a little bit of content research. What's some content that people would respond to and what resonates? So we came up with 16 different article titles. These aren't real articles. We just wrote the title and said, based on this alone, what would you click on and want to learn more about? And the number one was how to love my neighbor without being weird. I'd read it. I would absolutely read that. And the weird part is, yes, there's that desire there, but the behavior doesn't measure up. So consequently, what that means is less people are doing it. And we're creatures of socialization. We want to follow the crowd. We don't want to be the one that stands out. Conformity is a huge bias that we have. So if not a lot of people are doing it, then yeah, you are kind of the weird one if you reach out. I completely understand that desire to not be weird. 
to try to love on and connect with someone in a way that doesn't come across as awkward or strange. But yeah, the truth is still there that most people want that. Did you figure out how to do that without being weird and awkward? I don't know. You think back to our neighborhoods a little different. So I mentioned that on the front end. You had a leg up. I have a huge leg up. Absolutely. But at the same time, I recognize that I'm a particular person. I have a particular culture and a particular skin color and a creed, you know, culture, creed, color, all these things, the C's. And I live in a very diverse neighborhood, which is great. I really enjoy it. These examples that I threw out there about they speak another language. I don't know how to engage in that. I didn't just make that up. My immediate neighbor to my left, pretty much the whole house speaks Spanish. I've been able to connect with some of them that are in the third generation. They're a multi-generation household as well. I've been able to connect with them a little bit, but it hasn't gone as deep as I would want. What we ended up describing in the study too was there's these fences, the invisible fences. We, of course, have actual physical fences in our backyard, but there are these invisible fences too, like those things I mentioned, creed, color, culture. It's just there. I know it's there. Sometimes in the same way that it would be awkward for me to jump the fence, the actual literal fence of my neighbor and go into their backyard, it can seem a little strange if I'm trying to jump these other fences culturally, according to our religion, what we think. Those things are just glaring right now in our culture, our differences. But then when you move towards someone in difference, it means so much. I feel that on the receiving end of building trust, like when you were talking about reciprocity and mutuality, I feel that when someone moves towards me knowing our differences and they accept me in that way, neighbors. And then I feel that as I'm building relationships with people who, like you said, might speak a different language or come from a different worldview or whatever it is, those bonds can be really strong when they do form. So thinking big picture, what's going on in our culture Your research showed that there's been some breakdown in trust that we collectively as a society have in institutions or religious or government or anything like that. And then I'm sure that then filters down into our interpersonal relationships and our lack of trust with our neighbors. Share a little bit about that big picture and then how that impacts us in our neighborhoods. One of the things that has guided our research is a theory. It's called the social ecological theory. And it operates very similarly to family systems theory, which says that an actor and a partner, they influence each other. And what's going on with an actor, it's going to change what's going on with that partner. And that reciprocity, that interconnected effect can also be its own measured thing. So you can measure you guys Chris and Elizabeth. And then you can also measure your relationship. It's true of our societal systems as well. That's the theory. We want to get into that and try to understand it a little bit better. Our macro level world, what we're seeing, what studies suggest is that significant measures of trust are in decline. And there's many different categories that we could look at for trust. We can look at trust in the social fabric of a country the political state in terms of ideologies, but also do we trust our politicians? Do we trust those who are responsible for making policy decisions on behalf of the population? We can look at economic things. Do I trust businesses and CEOs? Do they have my best interests at heart when they're creating their products and when they're creating their services? Or are they after just the bottom line? 
And even me saying all of those different categories, you're probably already thinking and knowing no one trusts me. Oh, for sure. I'm like, no, don't trust them. Don't trust them. Businesses, CEOs, oh, for sure don't trust them. I'm like literally thinking that as you're listing it off. So I'm a product. We learned from organizations like Pew Research, Gallup, the National Opinion Research Center at University of Chicago. They're the ones that are the primary principal researchers behind the general social survey, which is a significant survey. It gets into some deeper stuff that we can't get into in our census. In addition, and those are all more like public organizations, nonprofit, NGOs, that's the space they live in. But also there's large multinational firms that do this kind of research too. Edelman, they have a trust barometer. They've been measuring this for 20 plus years in 28 different countries. They're looking at trust on a global scale. When we look at their research, I mentioned that Edelman, theirs has been going on for 20 plus years. Pew Research has been studying this since the 50s, as has Gallup. And yeah, what we learned that is true is in most measures, the percentage of people who only have some to no confidence in these institutions, it's increasing. The number of people who have no confidence, no trust, or very low, that amount of people is increasing. And several measures are at all-time lows, trust in government and media. And this isn't just in the U.S., this is global. So we really are talking about macro systems. With that trust in decline, there's a correlating trend. Again, because of social ecological theory, all of these things touch and impact one another. We see correlate trends in how people relate to one another. Consequently, and unsurprisingly, when we see this social fabric breakdown, it does something to us. It affects us. The U.S. is more polarized than ever. And of course, we see those things happening across political lines more than anything else, that polarization. A really difficult reality with that, if political polarization is the primary thing, the thing that gets most attention, what's happening, which is really interesting and kind of a newer phenomenon, is that political and religious affiliation, those identities which were once separate, you could with integrity, go to church, worship the Lord, and attempt to bring those values into the marketplace, into politics. There hasn't been a president in our history as a country that hasn't associated himself with the Judeo-Christian faith. If not, at least that they've gone as far as to say, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Catholic, I'm this denomination, right? So the weird thing that's happening is that those religious values and the political values are becoming deeply tied together. The theological word for that would be syncretism. You can't split the two. They become so deeply intertwined. It it almost reminds me of this moment in the movie Inside Out. I don't know if y'all seen that movie. There's that scene where they've moved beyond the center of emotions and they're trying to find their way back and they found the place in the brain where facts and opinions are stored. And all of the boxes get messed up. And they very jokingly said, oh, we can just put all these back together. That's anyway. We've sort of done that with a lot of our different identities. Our intersecting identities have become so overlapped and so meaningful to us at the same magnitude that we really can't separate them. And we see it in the data, right? I think we experience it intuitively that, okay, evangelicalism and republicanism 
they were dating. Now they're in a very serious, committed relationship. And that relationship is interesting. What we see and people who study this, they look at key statements of belief, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway. They've studied evangelicalism for decades, and they're starting to see that syncretism happen. Its effect is seeping in. Let me position us and where we are, right? We've moved from, yes, globally, there are these big changes. Trust is, is eroding. It's on the decline. A smaller system, it's considered an exosystem. It's a system that has an effect on us as Christians. Evangelicalism itself is a system. So it is being influenced by a system above it, a macro system, politics, culture. And we're seeing that effect. In 2022, for the first time, this is why it's so interesting, for the first time in their measurement, the majority of evangelicals agreed with this statement. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. The Bible is not literally true. Similarly, the majority, 67%, expressed agreement with this statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 67% agreed that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. There are these foundational things for what it means to be evangelical, and those things are starting to show their cracks too. Are we then ejecting some things and then importing other things that we're going to hold on that same religious level, like beliefs in a certain political party or something like that? Is that kind of like we're starting to blend and pick and choose, and but we're feeling and we're believing and acting like it's our faith in some ways. Is that? Yes, exactly. What politics does so well is it tells the story again and again, the myth of the other. Politics can convince us that it really is an us versus them. And the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible tells us it's actually us versus God, and we lose every time. So we can't do anything other than surrender. If anyone said the word surrender in a political landscape, that's suicide. No ratings in the polls on that one. Yeah, no ratings. So if the systems and the dissolution of trust are affecting us at that large of a level, it affects, can I trust the Bible? If the Bible is, yeah, it's a collection of interesting stories, but it's not literally true, then I can accept what I like and accept what works for me and where I need to fill my gaps in my own ideology. I'll accept something from politics or from society or the media. It fills that gap for us. So we see that happening at that exosystem level. So bad news so far. Hopefully we're hanging on. I'm so sorry. We need to understand the culture, the situation, the environment that we're in, and what makes it so hard for some of us. If we see a different political yard sign in our neighbor's yard, it's harder now than ever before to say, okay, the Bible tells me I will love my neighbor and move towards them. But like my politics are telling me I should stay away from this person and oppose them. And so with those two things, jettisoning maybe some of the things that the Bible says and bringing in some of the things that politics say, it makes a little more sense, like why we might have those triggering reactions to some of those things and not trust our neighbors in that way. And some of us, I think, I can't back this up with data because I don't work for Barna, but I think a lot of people are disassociating themselves with evangelicalism. And so then you come into a neighborhood as a Christian, as a Christ follower, and your neighbor is importing all of these things that they've seen 
previously, some of those stereotypes might be true. Some of them might not be. But then as believers, you might feel like you're fighting against those stereotypes. When you're supposed to be trust building, you feel like you have something to prove. That's not a good place to be. It creates a very difficult dynamic. Our reflex, anytime we're faced with the potential for conflict, and that's really what could potentially happen, that's what we're afraid of. Our reflex, depending on how we handle conflict, might be to avoid it or just press right into it and stand firm on our convictions and just alienate everyone around us. We see that show up in what people's perception is of their own faith. Barna did some research and what they found is that 56% of people, Christians, not just people, sorry, Christians, feel that their spiritual life is entirely private. I don't blame them. I really don't. Heather Holloman talks about this in her book, The Six Conversations, but especially when it comes to religion and politics too, and other areas, we're afraid to even talk because if we don't keep our faith private and we go public and we start having conversations, we're going to say all the wrong things. We're going to be completely misunderstood, labeled, whatever it is. Let's just keep shrinking our scope down to that personal individual level. We've looked at things at the macro, the exo. We even touched on mesosystemic, which is how these different systems influence each other. And that is its own layer. We can see that beginning to show up. And this is where it is just outside of ourselves. So that trust barometer I mentioned earlier, they measure how does this affect people? How does the sociopolitical climate end up affecting people? And this data I'm about to read to you, this is true of 27 of the most populous and influential countries. This includes the U.S., but also all these other countries, too. 65% of people agreed that the lack of civility and mutual respect today is the worst I've ever seen. So, yeah, their perception is that, yo, things are bad. Things are bad. And our beliefs influence our thoughts. Our thoughts influence what we say and what we do. What we do and what we say influences our habits, and our habits influence our lifestyle, and our lifestyle influences our legacy. The legacy that we're beginning to leave generation after generation is one of decreasing trust and increase in uncivility. It affects us. 62% agreed that the social fabric that once held this country together has grown too weak to serve as a foundation for unity and common purpose. You keep going from bad to worse to worser. I know. I'm sorry. One of your first participants said, but if we want to build that trust, we have to ourselves become trustworthy. So we have to bring some hope in here, Ryan. Here's one thing. And I want to ask you about when we think about us becoming people who are trustworthy, what else is important with that? But I think too, okay, we're swimming in this water of lack of trust, but that means on the flip side, there's a lot of opportunity to show up and demonstrate some trust and to become a person who's trustworthy. The bar is set pretty low, right? So that's cool. I love a low bar because you can underperform and overdeliver in the exact same instance. And so I think there's opportunity there as followers of Jesus to love our neighbors in an environment where No one's loving anybody, and we're just leaving our neighbors alone. We're fighting. We're judging. If we take the smallest of steps, it could have a massive impact. And so we want to take those steps, but we also want to grow in becoming people who are trustworthy. When I think about, okay, what makes me trust someone? I'm thinking about someone who cares for me, 
someone who is consistent. You don't sense any ulterior motives. What else would you say would be important for us as we want to become people who are trustworthy? I mentioned in my introduction that family life is a relationships ministry, right? Marriage and family. We're known for our marriage event or weekend to remember. The topic of trust between couples comes up a lot. It's not surprising, right? Trust is so important in any relationship. It's especially important in a bond between spouses, right? Or a bond between a parent and a child. The way that we see trust eroding in our world, it can erode very quickly at home too, right? So we have to be on guard, on defense, always willing to move toward the other person. And that is really where trust is developed, being present and willing to develop trust. That's like more than half the game, right? They say like 80% is just showing up. I would first start there and start with that there's a lot out there that can help us understand what it would look like to be trustworthy. How do we develop that? Researchers like John Gottman, he's studied trust so much. We can learn so much from him. He has a great little, I can't remember his acronym or an acrostic. So the word is a tune, and then we'll go horizontally now and look at what each of those letters can tell us. A tune, attunement. If you're unfamiliar with attunement, it's how am I receiving someone and validating where they are emotionally. It usually is paired with containment, attunement and containment. And it's important in childhood development, even at the youngest age when we're a baby, we want to attune, turn our face toward a child wherever they are emotionally, especially if they're upset. We turn our face towards them. We mirror their emotions. If they're sad and they're frowning, we feel it. I'm so so sorry. You can see it on someone's face. Containment is sort of like swaddling them. You're safe with me. That's how people begin to trust us. It's how a child learns how to trust a parent. So attuned. Awareness, that's the A, awareness of others' emotions. It's really difficult to feel like I can trust someone if they just don't even see me. They don't see what's going on. They're not paying attention. That's one of the things my wife always says to me is, I want you to see me. Awareness of emotions. Turning toward emotions. That's the first T. I'm aware of it. I turn to that emotion. I'm not deflecting it. I'm not saying that that doesn't matter. Because you can be aware and say, oh, you're just a snowflake. The other T, tolerance of two different viewpoints. Now, this shows up in adult relationships. Certainly can show up in a parent-child relationship. I've got very different viewpoints (laughs) when I think about my kids. But this is especially important to build trust between neighbors. We know because of all those categories, social, political, religious, culture, like there's a lot of viewpoints there. And to have tolerance to those viewpoints, that isn't, again, tolerance is not agreeing, but at least tolerating and willing to listen. There's an intentional practice that someone can engage in called perspective taking has talked a lot. It is written about a lot in a book called Winsome Convictions. Great book, Tim Mulehoff, Richard Lagner. They wrote a lot about two different viewpoints. How do we come together? And how do I stand firm in what I think, but do it winsomely so that I'm not alienating others? So that's like a great plug for that book. We've been reading it together as a department. Tolerance, that's the second T. Trying to understand the other. That's the you in our attune. Trying to understand the other. It feels so good when someone is listening and trying to really understand how I feel. And when they're saying back to me, now, okay, let me make sure I get this. Let me say what I heard. 
that feels good because it means that they are opening themselves up, not only in terms of their heart, but their head, right? I can have a lot of compassion for someone who is crying out, frustrated about something. But if I just don't understand and I'm not willing to, that can be a gap. And it can be difficult to bridge that gap. So trying to understand the other. Non-defensive responses to the other. So the end, non-defensive responses to the other. Another great book on this topic is Unoffendable. I don't know if you guys have heard of that book, but it's another one that shows up a lot when we talk to other people. If someone says something that just grinds your gears, goes straight to the core, non-defensive responses to the other. I could have used this whenever that other child at the park used Jesus's name in a way that I don't agree with. Do I need to come to Jesus's defense? My wall, my defense that I put up is actually something that's going to isolate me from that family. A non-defensive response to the other is important. And this is the key, right? That family has no idea. They don't know, but it still affects them. This is a case where my belief is leading to a lack of behavior, right? Oftentimes, our beliefs can shape what we do, but they also shape what we don't do. And in this case, I'm not moving toward that family because of that wall I put up instantly of like, oh, okay, I've completely written off that family because if their son is saying that, who knows what the parents are saying? That's where my mind went. I have a defensive response. We've been talking about this issue of unconditional positive regard. And that is something that I think helps so much in those moments where we're tempted to be offended. When you have unconditional positive regard, which is really just a fancy way of saying believing the best or I like you, in the words of Mr. Rogers, it's you I like. Unconditional positive regard allows us to pause and be curious and wonder, I wonder about their story. I wonder whatever it is about that situation versus jumping to accusation or assumption. I love that term. Say it one more time. Unconditional positive regard. I stole it from Heather Holloman's book, who says it's a psychological term, Carl Jung, maybe. But I've been looking for that term because I think the power of liking your neighbors and just enjoying them and delighting with them, even in those moments that could be potential tension drivers or, to use your word, honey, triggers. We can't control our triggers, but that unconditional positive regard can drive our responses. And like you said, it can help us either do move toward them in a good way or keep us from pulling away when that's not really what we want to do. Yeah, that is so good. Gottman calls that marital sentiment override. There's all these different words, right? Carl Young's got one. Gottman's got one. And he writes about it in the context of marital relationships, where you can have either positive or negative sentiment override, where negative is you perceive a neutral or even a positive interaction or bid is what he would call it as negative. And then a positive one is you perceive those neutral or negative ones as positive. So if Bethany lashes out to me, Bethany's my wife, if she lashes out to me, my positive sentiment override would say, man, she must be really tired. Something's under the surface here that's frustrating her. I need to move in. I need to move closer. And that's what that non-defensive response to the other can do, saying, this isn't a situation to put a wall up. This is actually a situation to move in and move closer. 
try to understand and listen. And that gets us to the last one. Here's the last one on its own, responding with empathy. What if I felt that way? What if my son was the one actually running around the park saying, she see this or like whatever? I'd be embarrassed, but other families experience my son in ways that probably grinds their gears. I've got an example. This is even with like a neighbor. This is a close friend. Some friends shared some really intimate personal information with us. I shared it with my son and I was like, okay, let's be praying about this. At a work picnic, he just blurts out that personal bit of information for all these other kids to hear. And yeah, that friend of his was just so embarrassed, so ashamed. So then, you know, we had to have a conversation with the parents and try to navigate. Sorry, what does this mean? Are they still friends? Do you love us? Please don't break up with us and our little friendship. You're hoping they'll have some positive sentiment override in that situation. I was really hoping. And they did. And that was built. That foundation was seven years of deep friendship, right? So something like that can happen and it not totally end things. We don't become the Hatfields and McCoys. This one thing didn't destroy everything. And I feel like that can happen so easily in a more fragile or delicate situation with a neighbor. I had a neighbor situation. It was our next door neighbor. They've since moved. I never had to circle back around at this, but they have a dog, a pretty intimidating Rottweiler. I went in to pet it. Why did you do that? Bad idea. I know. I should have known better. I stuck my hand out there. I was trying to be gentle and gingerly and it approached me. I'm not approaching it. And it snapped at my thumb. And that neighbor was horrified. It marred the relationship. It, for him, likely put up a wall. There's no way he'll ever trust me. So even when it's like, we don't intend to do these things, sometimes things like that happen. And that's just like weakness and frailty in us. It's looking out at the world and saying, I'm just like that. I can't be trusted now. I've done this, or my dog has done this, and I'm responsible for it. And yeah, like attunement is looking at that situation and moving in and saying, hey, brother, that was an incredibly awkward moment with the dog, but I'm okay. I really am. And I don't want that to affect our relationship as neighbors. It shouldn't. That's not that big of a deal. We never got to have that opportunity. I I regret that because that would have been a cool story with a nice little bow on it. We'll have those moments where we want to take that moment back or redo it, instant replay, and let's see if we can change the circumstances. It's okay. Grace can fill the gap. Even when we can't fill the gap with trust, I think grace can fill that gap. If you could go back, you'd be like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have reached out my hand to pet the dog. And then I could have had a great conversation. But if we think about, okay, God's sovereign, he can work through all circumstances. He allowed you to do that. You did that. And then what an incredible opportunity. Like you said, you didn't have this opportunity, but I'm just even listening to you tell that story. I'm like, if you had gone back and said, hey, it's okay. I'm okay. Are you okay? I don't want this to get in the way of our relationship. Tell me more about your lovely animal or something kind of fun and laughed at yourself a little bit. Again, the bar is set so low. That would have been an incredible. We've had this experience because our daughter Pearl did get bit in the face by a neighbor's dog. And actually, she's dog sat for the dog now multiple times. So it didn't impair. Now, the bonds of trust were strong because like you were saying, it wasn't a fragile relationship. It wasn't delicate. There have been years of trust, but still, it was a moment. She got bit in the face. It really is a good dog, but it's a rescue dog. So it's a little finicky and doesn't trust. 
we were able to move through that because of the history of trust that we had. Yeah, it's just really important, I think, for us as neighbors, as we're following Jesus, to remember the grace that we have received from Jesus for all our mistakes and how he moved towards us and those while we were still enemies. Christ died for us, right? So then translating that to our neighbors and looking, like you said, seeing those interactions, you could see them as neutral or negative, but trying to see those as positive or at least that something positive could come from that interaction of maybe a conflict or a little disagreement, dispute, something like that. And that's where, like we said, in our culture and in our climate of lack of trust and just contentiousness, it could go a long way into showing them the love of Christ. Even if you don't mention his name, doing that as a believer, it can be really powerful. Are there any scriptures that come to mind as you've been in this content, as you've been in the research that would inform our view of trust? Yeah, I think the one that I come back to again and again, it doesn't specifically reference trust. Hard to find like a cherry pick verse that's perfectly applicable to this situation. Uh, sometimes we get that. I don't want to read my life into the Bible. I want to read the Bible into my life. And what has helped me as I navigate this is Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And it continues with a lot more helpful scripture there. but. Trust, building trust, it's an interesting thought that I would want to do nothing out of selfish ambition, that I I should look to myself really as being below others, below others. The example that Christ sets himself to earn my trust, to put my trust in him, is that he humbled himself. He took on humanity to redeem mine. The fact that he did that means that I should trust him with everything. I should trust him with my life. I understand my weaknesses. I understand my faults. I know I'm not sufficient to cover them. And he sees all that and he does something about it. So that model of building trust, earning trust through self-sacrifice and humility, that's what comes to mind for me. We've talked a lot about some practical things to try to fill that gap between our desires and our actual behavior. Neighboring while it's all difficult and cumbersome and awkward and we don't want to say the wrong thing or, wow, it's like just a mountain of data that we've talked about today that suggests this is not a fight that we're going to win. (laughs) Things are trending down. The other thing that helps me in terms of scripture, it's not necessarily one particular verse, but all scripture points to the fact that Jesus beat the odds. The odds were stacked against all of us. And he beat them. Having hope in the odds being beaten, having trust that the model that he gave us for what it looks like to earn the trust of others, that's what gives me confidence and hope to show up confidently in my neighborhood. But that confidence is filtered through that model of humility and deference to the other, not seeking out changing my neighborhood for my own whims, my own ambition. But yeah representing him to others so that they see and they trust and they know that the love of Christ is real because they feel it through me. Also makes me think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He washes their feet, a disgusting job, lowers himself to that. And then the point there is 
as a servant above their master. It's like, no, this was the example I've set for you. He did that for us. Through that empowerment, we go and do that for our neighbors. My girls and I were actually talking about that verse on the drive to school today because both Ginger and Pearl were arguing over who was going to sit in the front seat. And it went on and on. And I quoted that scripture at them, (laughs) probably maybe a little, I don't know if it was well-timed or not. I don't know if it was well-received, but that idea of considering others' interests as more important than your own, it is so powerful in a family. It is so powerful with our neighbors to give them the front seat. It means so much because we all want the front seat. And when you give your neighbor the front seat and you defer, to use your word, I'm thinking about the Beatitudes because we've been in the Beatitudes. I'm thinking about meekness, which is a dirty word in our culture. Nobody wants to be meek. Nobody wants the back seat because we want prosperity now. We want ours now. We want all the things. But meekness says, no, I have a reward coming, but it's delayed. And therefore, I can give them the front seat. And so I love that that's where you would start as far as thinking about our neighbors, because we all know how powerful that is and how much it means. But it's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's hard to do here with each other in a marriage. It's hard to do with your siblings. And it's hard to do with your neighbors. But God's at work there. Absolutely. I wanted to add one more thing, too, just because as I look at the full passage, there's a lot more that stands out. We mentioned earlier that there's that gap in perception of a good neighbor helps those around them. And the odd thing about that is, again, in building trust, there's absolutely that reciprocity effect. There's that if you express a need to others, then they will instinctually just trust you. They'll want to move toward you. It's not manipulative. It's accepting that you have a need. It is saying, I'm going to defer to you. I think you have a strength that can cover my weakness. I have a project that I don't fully understand or comprehend. And you seem like you understand it really well. Your grass looks incredible. What should I do? (laughs) It's chicken poop, Ryan. That's incredible. Good fertilizer. This is especially important for Christians. We think we have what others need, right? And what we end up doing is similar to what Paul says to not do or what he says Christ didn't do. We're counting our relationship as an equality with God. We're saying, hey, we don't need anything. We've got what you need. And Paul goes on there, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, I get the the full weight and power of that as Jesus came to serve. And yet at the same time, he was fully man, fully God. God needs nothing. Men need things. We need each other. God said it's not good for man to be alone, even though he was in the presence of God fully. We still have needs. And Jesus accepted that neediness. And I think that's a good comparison that we can draw, too, is that to be a good neighbor, it's to admit in our humility, not just I'm not going to not say anything about this or I'm going to defer to you. It's also going to be admitting I want to be served by you as much as I can serve you. That, I think, is a little bit more of a deeper humility that's difficult to accept, but very practical to act out. It's very practical to actually go across the street and ask for something. And it's true because we are needy. Ryan, any other books or resources? You've given us a couple good book mentions there. Any other things that 
you would want to tell our listeners if they wanted to delve more into this or take some next steps? Yeah, absolutely. Check out the Hopeful Neighborhood Project based out of Lutheran Hour Ministries. We owe so much of what we learned, the study that they did with Barna and their Hopeful Neighborhood Research Study. I would definitely check that out. I'm sure just through this podcast, we all have interviewed a lot of people that are in the neighboring space. There are some books that come to mind, The Art of Neighboring, Gospel Comes with a House Key. Those are the kind of the ones that, that, that we certainly come to expect. I think Winsome Convictions, I mentioned that earlier. I would maybe just double down on that. It is important. And, you know, we're coming up on an election year. Unoffendable was the other book you mentioned. So that also applies in an election year. Yeah. So those things, it's important to know how to converse with others about the things that we have strong opinions about. Because in this particular podcast, we're talking about, okay, how do we just get in the door? How do we address some reasons why we're not talking to each other? What do we do about trust? How do we build trust? Once you get beyond that, then that's where you get into the territory of deeper conversations, more strongly held convictions, and having a game plan for what you're going to do when you strike that chord of, oh, they believe something different. We didn't reference this particular stat, but in that same trust barometer study, 20% of people said that they would be willing to live in the same neighborhood as someone who had very different ideological perspectives, different values from them. Which means 80% of people that they surveyed said, I don't want to live with someone who doesn't think like me. You can't really help that. So being prepared for when you do come across that, either in your neighborhood or at work, what's your game plan? We talked about the attunement stuff here, right? I can receive and be empathetic, but actually getting into the nitty gritty of asking someone their story and then they say, what do you believe? And doing that in a way that doesn't alienate people. I think having a good resource for that is important. Winsome Conviction is a great book for that. Well, thanks, Ryan, for a fantastic conversation. Thanks for sharing your time and the research. And even though the outlook and the picture of trust in our country and in our neighborhoods is bleak, I really love that the way forward is walking with Jesus and allowing the way he stooped and came to our level, humbled himself for us, is the way forward as we interact with our neighbors in humility and empathy and care and seek to believe the best. So thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This is an encouraging conversation. I'm honored and humbled that you would invite me. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for tuning in. Leave us a comment with your thoughts on today's episode or let us know other topics related to neighboring you want to talk about. Or follow the link in the show notes to share a neighboring story with us. Tell us what you're trusting God for in your neighborhood and how you're seeing God at work. You can also follow Placed for a Purpose on Instagram, and you can help others find us by leaving a review, subscribing, and sharing this episode with a friend. Mm -hmm.